Professor Mark, and welcome back to The Missing Piece. Thank you, Will. Great to be back. Professor Mark, again, as I mentioned in the intro, the relationship between China and the U.S. today drastically changed. And we know that recently, President Joe Biden and also the Chinese President Xi Jinping had the fifth virtue meeting. Now, we're not going to talk about and probably already know, and most of us we know that this general topics that were discussed during the virtual meeting. But my question, I want to take another approach. How come the relationship between the two countries has not changed at all? So in other words, we have, we have seen and we have heard the meetings between the two leaders one after another. But at this moment, we have not seen any positive or any effective changes. So the question I guess everyone is asking is, what is the purpose of the virtual meeting like this? Thank you. The purpose of this meeting and uh, previous meetings between uh, Biden and Xi have been to essentially find ways of lowering the temperature in the bilateral relationship. Even though there was a bit of a promise when the Biden administration began that there would be a bit of a soft reset, if you will, of China policy after the Trump years. The fact is, U.S. and Chinese policies have still begun to diverge, that China is becoming increasingly suspicious of U.S. motives, mm. and the United States is more open about pointing to China as a strategic and economic competitor. Now, Professor Mark, again, based on the report that came out from Chinese government, and we believe that Xi Jinping has been very confident and also very firm regarding some of the basic principles in China, for example, the territorial dispute and also the region protection, you know, the human rights and also the uh, economic benefits or economic prosperity. But meanwhile, at this moment, U.S. is trying to send this crystal clear message to China in terms of balancing and also to understand how the world order is. But but when we look at really the conversation, when we look at, take a look at a deeper look, it looks like the harder U.S. government tries it, and the less the Chinese government cares. So in other words, why should the Chinese government at this moment that pay attention to the rhetoric of the U.S. side if we know the relationship is still in this deadlock position? How would you explain that? Yeah, on one hand, the Chinese government is starting to become used to, as you correctly point out, uh, the idea that it is a great power, that it is an emerging global power, that it has interests uh, far beyond the Asia Pacific. And because of that, Beijing is more prone to see the United States and its friends and allies as potential obstacles to China's growth. At the same time, the United States is starting to come to the realization that China is a competitor, not just in terms of military and politics, mm. but also in terms of economics and high technology. Mm. So even though there have been uh, quite a bit of dialogue to say there needs to be some greater efforts towards um, better cooperation, better coexistence, right now there just does not appear to be the atmosphere for that. Mm. Especially at a time when both governments in the U.S. and China are facing some very significant domestic challenges and are very concerned about falling into some kind of conflict spiral, some kind of uh, deterioration, further deterioration of diplomatic relations. So it's a difficult situation for both uh, governments. Mm. 
You know, again, Professor Mark, when we talk about the relationship between China and the U.S. at this moment, I think, again, as I mentioned in the intro, back in 1972, when former U.S. President Richard Nixon did a groundbreaking trip to China, and again, that was the opportunity to really let the world to see what China was really about, and of course, that really led to this open-door policy. Now, back in the days that people could not or did not really use the word trust, you know, between those two relationship, because I guess it was little by little or gradual, a gradual progress that for people to understand what those two countries were about in terms of this political engagement. But today, fast forward, how much do you think that from the U.S. side can trust the China in terms of cooperating on some of the critical issues, for example, economic uh, uh, benefits or uh, mutual prosperity or climate change or, you know, uh, much greater uh, projects that involved uh, both countries' contribution. So in other words, how much do you think the U.S. today can rely on China to, for China to keep on playing the rules or to follow the rules at least? Yeah, there are still many areas and many policymakers in uh, both countries have pointed this out where the two countries are very much on the same page. And that includes uh, various issues related to climate change, environmental policy. There's still quite a bit of room for dialogue. Both countries are also very concerned about the current state of the global economy. They're obviously very much concerned still about global health, the kind of pathway out of the pandemic. So one would think that there would still be quite a bit of maneuvering room for the two countries to talk. And these issues did come up apparently during the phone call between uh, Xi and Biden. Mm. But a lot of that has been obscured by concerns from both countries about the status quo. That is kind of the mantra that both countries are using right now. Who is trying to disrupt the status quo? Mm. The United States has said that as China continues to grow, it is becoming more revisionist, it is becoming more assertive. And we see this in policies related to Taiwan, South China Sea, maritime policies as a whole. Whereas China has hit back and has begun to accuse the United States more frequently of trying to disrupt the status quo of creating quote unquote small circles mm. to create various alliances and accusing the United States of supposedly being stuck in a Cold War thinking. Mm. So with this kind of difference of opinion over what is the status quo and who is trying to change it, it's really obscuring the possibility of cooperation elsewhere. Hmm. Professor Mark, I want to get to our next portion of the conversation regarding the region of Taiwan. In, you know, again, at the beginning, before taping the show, you and I, we started this discussion. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House today, that recently announced that her interest in visiting Taiwan. Now, in reality, this sets a firestorm in mainland China, because we know that Taiwan has been one of the critical region of China again. But on one hand, China has been warning U.S. not to interfere with what they called domestic affairs. But on the other hand, U.S. and Taiwan relationship has always been in this stable. At least we can see that Taiwan is living under the protection of U.S. at this moment again to the world. So I want to get your reaction is, number one, what do you think prompted Nancy Pelosi to make the decision to visit Taiwan? And number two, how would you think that Chinese government is going to react to this, given the fact that less than 48 hours ago that Xi and Biden just had another virtue meeting? And I believe this matter was, uh, was discussed 
during the virtual conversation? And how do you think we should understand everything? What is Nancy Pelosi or was Nancy Pelosi completely putting greater fire in this relationship? Yes, it could be a bit of a cliche to say that Taiwan's uh, status internationally is at a bit of a turning point, but you can certainly make that argument. On one hand, Taiwan's diplomatic space has been cut down quite a bit over the past few years. At present, only 13 governments plus the Vatican recognize Taipei. On the other hand, though, over the past two years, Taiwan has gained a great deal of visibility internationally. It has improved relations with several governments. It has been praised for its handling of COVID-19. And many uh, governments, uh, not only the United States, but in Europe, have looked to Taiwan as a potential partner in several ways, not only diplomatically, but economically. Mm. So China is very much aware of this and is also aware that the current government of Tsai Ing-wen is quite popular and her government is much more open to the idea of greater autonomy for Taiwan. And Beijing, as I said before, is starting to become very nervous about any possibility that the United States might try to bring Taiwan slowly but surely into the American orbit. So now you have a situation whereby Speaker Pelosi will be making a trip through East Asia, that Taiwan might be included in the itinerary. Mm. If she were to visit Taiwan, this would be the first time since 1997 when Newt Gingrich visited mm. uh, Taiwan that a House Speaker would be making this visit. And as many commentators have pointed out, we were dealing with a much different China back in 1997. Uh, China was much smaller in terms of its power. It was trying to get into the World Trade Organization and needed U.S. support. And it was very much preoccupied with the uh, reversion of Hong Kong to Chinese sovereignty. Mm. So China today is much stronger, much more powerful. And as we've seen just over the past few years, much more sensitive to anything mm. that looks like an attempt to pull Taiwan away from the mainland. Professor Mark, I want to read something to you. Again, this is one of the articles came out on New York Times this morning. Again, regarding the Pelosi's trip, one of the columnists wrote and say, First, Ms. Pelosi should postpone any visit to Taiwan to give the Biden administration time to articulate a clear and consistent policy towards the island. And number two, administration leaders should work to build bipartisan consensus around a policy stressing the Americans' top objective is to deter Chinese use of force against Taiwan and preserve peace in the Taiwan Strait. Now, in reality, we know that when Nancy Pelosi decided to include Taiwan during her trip, but meanwhile, Joe Biden as the sitting U.S. president I guess, had a somehow conversation with the Pelosi regarding the consequences if she decide to take Taiwan or to decide to visit Taiwan. But my question to you is, don't you think, Professor Mark, this actually indicates this internal inconsistency within this Democratic Party? So in other words, if Pelosi truly understand the foreign policy side under Joe Biden or really understand this deadlock or tension between China and the U.S. at this moment, why didn't she consult anyone within the Joe Biden's cabinet first before making any decision, given the fact, again, as I mentioned before, the relationship between U.S. and China today are not on this positive term? What do you think? Yeah, it's very much like those who argue that uh, the trip should be postponed have pointed to the fact that this is very poor timing from a Chinese policy point of view. In the next few months, October and November, there's going to be a very key party Congress in Beijing, where President Xi Jinping is going to have to justify uh, his third term. 
under very difficult uh, domestic circumstances in China right now. Mm. The economy is still facing a lot of headwinds. The zero COVID policy within China has caused a considerable amount of economic damage. And there is going to be a, quite a bit of talk about to what degree uh, President Xi might have to share power with various other factions within China. So now you have this announcement by Speaker Pelosi. And those who argue that the trip should be postponed would say, well, China would see this as a direct provocation to mm -hmm. attempt to kind of undermine Xi's power at a very critical period in Chinese politics. Mm -hmm. Now, as you point out, um, President Biden did say that this was probably not a good idea, that this would not be uh, you know, the best time for such a visit. On the other hand, there are those who are arguing within the United States government that Taiwan needs more American support, that mm -hmm. the circumstances have changed quite a bit. That China has stepped up its uh, policies uh, towards Taiwan uh, in regards to intimidation and revisionism. But the problem is, when is a good time for such a visit? There will never be a time where the Chinese government will accept this. But mm. this particular timing of the visit is very poor. Now, why this was not discussed, first of all, why this was leaked ahead of time and why this was not further discussed within the Biden government itself, that is a very good question here. And that is something which China is looking at very carefully to say, okay, what is really happening here? Is this trip completely sanctioned by the Biden administration? Or is this a question of different individuals having different priorities? You know, Professor Mark, I think by having the Speaker Pelosi, if she decide or if she were to go to Taiwan, but keep in mind, not too long ago, on the Republican side, Mike Pompeo, who was the former Secretary of the State under President Trump, he also went to Taiwan as well. But back in the days that when he were in Taiwan, he actually went to the, uh, the region as a private citizen, you know, despite the fact that he was welcomed by President Tsai Ing-wen and, you know, he received this honor degree. Again, he was showered with Taiwan by the Taiwanese government and also by the Taiwanese blessings, etc. But again, regardless if the Democrats or Republicans, but higher officials keeps on deciding or making decision to visit the sensitive region of China. Why do you think the U.S. today is so interested in Taiwan? So in other words, is it really much for to sending the clear message to China or there's something behind the door that we don't know? That's the first question. And the second question, we have heard of one China policy for years. And I think this is really the division between U.S. and China when we talk about Taiwan. Now, again, going back to the article, it says the U.S. stands by its one China policy and does not support Taiwan's independence. I mean, again, it sounds strange that how does U.S. understand the relationship between Taiwan and mainland China at this moment? And what are the greater interests to cultivate or to motivate U.S. officials keeps on going to that region. Yes, yeah, since the 1970s, the United States policy towards uh, Taiwan has been strategic ambiguity and adherence, as you say, to the one, chi uh, one China policy. Now, the problem, though, is how China is interpreting that now. Beijing is worried that the United States is almost trying to have its cake and eat it too, mm. that it is still professing support for the one China policy while slowly eroding its foundations by encouraging higher level diplomatic contacts, by offering Taiwan various forms of additional cooperation, economically and perhaps even strategically. And the other issue that China is very well aware of is that time is starting to become important here. Mm. That as Taiwan continues to um, 
undergo political change as new generations get into office with no particular connection to the mainland, it becomes that much more difficult for Beijing to convince Taiwan of some kind of one country, two systems arrangement. As well, the United States is worried about timing. Those who argue that the United States should uh, increase its support for Taiwan have pointed out that, again, we're not talking the 1990s when the Chinese military was much more restricted. There are worries that China is in a much better position now to engage in military activity towards Taiwan, perhaps as little as two or three years from now. Mm -hmm. So the argument is that the United States should do whatever is possible in order to support Taiwan, to support the status quo, again, claiming that it is China that is disrupting the status quo, not the United States. So unfortunately, this kind of status quo position really can't be sustained under all these circumstances. You know, this morning, as we were watching the news that Chinese military or Chinese government has been actively doing a lot more military exercises around South China Sea. Again, I think this is another indicator not only for any other countries, but particularly for the West. So in other words, we know that not only Taiwan, but also South China Sea also has been one of the critical and the sensitive topics to the Chinese communities or to the Chinese government. So Professor Mark, I want to get your reaction is... When we see Chinese government quietly implementing more military power in South China Sea and also demonstrating and showing the strength of the Chinese military power, is that a clear message to the U.S.? And also, is that even a, 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 a how can I say, a sounding message to Taiwan? So in other words, to say, hey, listen, we are simply doing exercise and you should understand which side is butter on it at this moment. Do you think that U.S. and Taiwan should be concerned at this moment? In 2013, there was a bit of a stir when uh, the Chinese government released a new government-issued map of China. Mm. And what was interesting about it, it was a vertical map, one that uh, very much demonstrated the connection between China, Taiwan, the East and South China Seas, mm. basically looking at it as all one kind of waterway, if you mm. will. And that kind of mentality is being reflected now in a lot of Chinese strategic thinking. As far as Beijing is concerned, all of this is interconnected. The idea that the South China Sea is historical Chinese waters, that the United States is again disrupting the status quo by engaging in freedom of navigation operations, that is attempting to interfere with its sovereignty over Taiwan, and has been, in its view, trying to push back against this outside interference, attempting to internationalize this particular dispute. China, with its advancements in um, maritime power, with the new aircraft carrier and with uh, new missions designed to increase its presence, both military and civilian, in the South China Sea, is seen as reactive rather than active. And of course, Washington very much disagrees on that. Hmm. Again, Professor Mark, I get one more question before we move on to the next portion of the conversation. Now, going back to this relationship between mainland China and Taiwan, the simple question is, how much do you think China is interested in taking over Taiwan at this moment? So in other words, we have heard the rumors for years, you know, especially under current uh, leader Xi Jinping. And given the fact that uh, today, Speaker Pelosi, uh, if, if she decides to make the trip, including Taiwan, you know, again. But the question is, China's plate is pretty full this year, not only for this political shift, but also for this economic challenges ahead of us. 
So how much room do you think Chinese government today that interested in taking over uh, Taiwan or try to send a clear message to the US, United States by sending the military or some type of symbolic gesture in Taiwan in order to stop US from interfering that what Chinese government called domestic affairs? What do you think? Yes, I would say in the short term, uh, I would say Taiwan, any kind of serious action against Taiwan in the short term, in other words, this year and next, I'd say is very low. Because as you say, right now, the big question is what is going to happen during and after the party Congress? Mm -hmm. What is going to be the kind of domestic level situation uh, during this uh, very important event? There is going to be a lot of pressure, for example, for China to engage in corrective policies towards the economy in order mm -hmm. to deal with the slowdown of uh, economic growth. There is going to be a lot of discussion about whether the current zero COVID policy needs to be adjusted. Mm. And there's going to be a lot of discussion overall about China's foreign policy, including the Belt and Road. So it is very unlikely, and I would say especially in light of Russia's actions in Ukraine, which China is looking at very closely and saying, OK, look at Russia's difficulties with Ukraine right now. Look at the lack of progress that is made in Ukraine over the past five months. We simply cannot afford that risk. We simply cannot afford to get into a situation which we cannot get out of at such a very difficult time. In the further future, though, this is where things get very complicated because much is going to depend on whether the current diplomatic status quo, not only involving uh, China and Taiwan, but also the United States becomes very key here. Because I should point out that the other thing that China is looking at is we might be dealing with a considerable shift in U.S. policy as little as a few months from now after mm -hmm. the midterms in the U.S. and potentially a different presidency in 2024. So I would imagine that many Chinese policymakers are saying, OK, we need to still continue to look tough. We need to look like we are taking this very seriously. But there is no urgency to deal with this situation right away until we get a better idea of where the U.S. is going to stand in the future. Professor Mark, what about the credibility of Xi Jinping at this moment? And how much do you think that people, again, not only in China, but also outside China, when the world leaders looking at this country's leader, how much do you think that credibility does Xi Jinping have today? So in other words, Xi Jinping, you know, in reality has not left office since, I guess, the year of 2020, you know, given this COVID uh, situation. But meanwhile, that Xi Jinping's rhetoric has been widely distributed and also widely heard throughout the world. But meanwhile, we'll look at, again, as something you mentioned before, internal economic slowness and also the uh, the COVID situation and also the foreign policy. Again, this year, someone that also mentioned that for Xi Jinping to build or continue his legacy for the Belt and Road Initiative. So putting everything together how much credibility does Xi Jinping have today, not only towards the people in China, but also especially towards the outside? Yeah, the decision that was taken in 2018 to allow Xi Jinping to run for a third term, so this is back in two, yeah, 2018, this is very controversial because it basically pushes aside roughly three decades of precedent. So there was the understanding that if she was going to be able to do this, he really would need to, first of all, consolidate power. Mm. And second of all, show that he is still continuing to put China on the right track, mm. including economically. Up until, I would say, about a year ago, things were not perfect, but very much on schedule in that regard. The Belt and Road was growing. China was being looked at very carefully for its handling of the pandemic. You look at what has been happening, though, over the past few months. 
economic slowdown, supply chain issues, a lot of popular discontent over mm. what some see as an overreaction to various COVID lockdowns. And you see China's status internationally. And I'm not just talking the United States. I'm looking at Europe, Australia, many parts of the world mm. where China's soft power has eroded considerably. So I would love to be in the room when this particular party Congress begins, because I don't think it's going to be a very easy process anymore. Mm. So goes back to what I'm saying before about the timing of the Pelosi visit. I can just imagine the frustration that the Xi government is facing right now, having to deal with all of this, having to deal with what is going to be a very difficult autumn and then having this happen. So it is going to be much more difficult for Xi Jinping to justify the need for a third term, the need for him to still be He's been referred to as the minister of everything because he has his uh, has his hands in so many different departments, uh, both domestic and international. His situation is going to become a lot more difficult. And even though China has been trying to finesse this to say, well, we're just in the middle of a economic adjustment, I don't see a very quick recovery under current circumstances. There would have to be a lot of radical change. And in order to do that, there would have to be some kind of admission that, okay, she got this wrong. Hmm. What is China trying to accomplish this year? I mean, not only that we talk about politically, but also especially focus on this economic power. Because for years, that believe me, I've heard so many times that people are saying China is trying or China is very much interested in taking over the role of the U.S. to be one of to be the only largest economy in the world. But again, by the dispute and the argument, Chinese government had denied such statement for decades and denied such statement every single time. It says Chinese uh, China has never been interested in replacing anyone. So I want to know at this moment, if Xi Jinping were to continue his presidency for the third term and also after the congressional meeting, and also, you know, looking at this uh, ahead of the schedule, this uh, relationship between U.S. and China. So ultimate goal is, Professor Mark, what is China trying to accomplish and how do you think the world should see this country in a different way or in a much more transparent aspect? Yeah, short term, I would say China just wants to get through this year intact, that it wants to get through um, both the party Congress and the process of reworking its economy. So it goes back to better uh, improved growth levels. Mm. Longer term, well, things get very complicated in terms of where China sees its own role and its position vis-a-vis -vis the United States. I would say I agree that China has been very reluctant to demonstrate that it wants to play a global, global leadership role too quickly. And we see evidence of this everywhere. China, for example, has been very hesitant to weigh in directly on the Ukraine conflict, mm -hmm. other than declaring neutrality and calling for all sides to exercise restraint. Very little beyond that. Only very recently has China been willing to step into various uh, conflict situations outside of the Asia-Pacific. It has offered to be a mediator, for example, in various uh, disputes in the Horn of Africa. But overall, China is still very concerned. It is still almost looking over its shoulder at the worry that if it grows too fast, if it tries to take on too much responsibility too quickly, it is not going to achieve global power status. Mm. And it has been very careful to look at other countries that have tried to become bigger, become global powers, Soviet Union, for example, and failed completely. So a conservative approach is warranted there. Now, the problem is China also tends to view the United States as becoming increasingly problematic, potentially mm. declining. Therefore, China is saying, well, okay, do we need to fill this perceived vacuum uh, much more quickly? And if so, how do we do that? So 
Well, China, I don't think, is interested in assuming a global leadership role too quickly. It is also made very clear that it wants to present itself as an alternative form of governance to a U.S.-led system, which is simply part of the past. Mm.